Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, our weekly highlights program, a tapas bar, if you will, offering you some of the most tantalizing stories from the week. I'm Sarah Maslin, foreign correspondent for The Economist, and on your menu, Armando Yanucci on the farce in the White House, the bad side of driving in Myanmar, and a cultural history of hauntings for Halloween. But first, a czar is born was our cover line this week. Vladimir Putin has been Russia's president for 17 years, and his position is stronger than ever. As the world marks the centenary of the October Revolution, both reformers and traditionalists are hailing him as a 21st century czar. Our cover leader asked whether Mr. Putin might share a czar's weaknesses too. Although Mr. Putin worries about the colour revolutions that swept through the former Soviet Union, the greater threat is not of a mass uprising, still less of a Bolshevik revival. It is that, from spring 2018, when Mr. Putin starts what is constitutionally his last six-year term in office after an election that he will surely win, speculation will begin about what comes next. Mr. Putin has blazed the trail for personalised autocracy in the modern world. Like a Tsar, Mr. Putin surmounts a pyramid of patronage. Since he moved against the oligarchs in 2001, taking control first of the media and then of the oil and gas giants, all access to power and money has been through him. He enjoys an approval rating of over 80%, partly because he has persuaded Russians that, as an aide says, if there is no Putin, there is no Russia. Yet he has faced the same dilemma as Tsar Nicholas II in the years before the revolution. Whether Russia should embrace civil rights and democracy or resist them to ensure a strong and stable state. Mr. Putin's answer has been to entrust the economy to liberal-minded technocrats and politics to former KGB officers. Inevitably, politics has dominated economics and Russia is paying the price. And, like a czar, Mr. Putin has used repression and conflict to strengthen his hand. He has suppressed political opposition and social liberals, including feminists, NGOs and gays. Abroad, his annexation of Crimea and the campaigns in Syria and Ukraine have been burnished for the evening news by a captive, triumphalist media. However justified, the West's outrage at his actions underlined to Russians how Mr Putin was once again asserting their country's strength after the humiliations of the 1990s. So, what does this postmodern czar mean for the world? To find out, pick up a copy of the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. Now, a new film, The Death of Stalin, dares to laugh at the brutal machinations in pursuit of ultimate power following the death of Russia's former dictator in 1953. Its director and co-writer, Armando Yanucci, joined us on our weekly chat show, The Economist Asks, to discuss whether President Trump really has killed satire for good. He is his own satirist. Every tweet he makes has its own exaggeration and distortion, which is what satirists do. Any attempt to replicate Trump in a fictional form, I think, is going to suffer because it will never be as true and as horrific 
as the reality. I think, though, that comedy, political comedy in America has got stronger from another means, which is journalism. If Trump is saying that everything is fake news, that you lot behind your microphones and your cameras are all fake into that artificial vacuum, comedians are now pouring in with fact-checking. And you can hear more from that conversation by subscribing to The Economist Asks on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Moving swiftly on now from the ridiculous to the sublime, as our correspondent in Liberia happened across a rather unusual pageant recently. Yet as described in a box in the Middle East and Africa section, this one really wasn't about beauty at all. They want to strike fear into the hearts of their opponents, remarked an onlooker tapping his chest. Hyperbole is the name of the game at the Liberia National Police, or LNP, Queen Contest. Trading their uniforms for ball gowns and flanked by raucous entourages, raining confetti and cash, a half-dozen policewomen peacocked to their seats under a balloon-lined marquee. Yet the women voguing and delivering impassioned speeches were not competing on appearance but on professional ambition. For all its pomp, the contest is a practical affair to raise money to send policewomen to Australia for training. The winner is not the Queen judged most beautiful, but the one who raises the most cash. Since the departure of the UN mission last year, the LNP has been left in charge of national security. But less than a fifth of Liberia's police are women. The LNP force has a shortfall of about 3,000 police officers, and it is particularly in need of trained police women. That matters because women avoid reporting crimes such as rape to male officers, when they might do so to police women. So was the pageant a success? As night fell over Monrovia and the crowd thinned, officials counted the equivalent of $8,350 raised. Not quite as much as they needed, but a strut in the right direction. Our emerging markets editor had a rather more unnerving experience this week on the streets of Myanmar. As he explained on Money Talks, our podcast on all things business, finance, and economics, he ended up taking a taxi ride and his life into his own hands. It took me a while to realize why some of the drives were so um, bracing, let me put it that way. And uh, the reason is if you take the passenger seat in a typical Myanmar taxi, you will be asked whether um, it's safe to overtake or not, uh, especially on some of the narrower roads when you're stuck behind uh, slow-moving lorries and, you know, rickshaws and kids are coming in the opposite direction. Uh, The reason is that uh, Myanmar is basically a used car market, and most of them, a vast majority, are imported from Japan. Um, That's fine. The Japanese cars are are reliable. The problem is that, of course, uh, Japan drives on the left, uh, whereas Myanmar people drive on the right. So it, it makes driving around Myanmar, you know, uniquely dangerous. Money Talks is available every Tuesday. Well... One surefire way to avoid the perils of the road is to take to the skies. A piece in the America section this week investigated why so many Latin American cities are doing just that. Mexicable, a cable car line 4.9 kilometres, that's three miles long, soars above Ecatepec, a poor suburb of Mexico City. Open for just over a year, its 185 gondolas carry 18,000 people a day, between San Andres de la Cañada at the top of the hill and Santa Clara Cuatitla at the bottom. The trip makes five stops en route and takes 19 minutes, compared with the 80-minute bus trip residents previously endured. 
In rich countries, cable cars are mainly for tourists, skiers, and the like. But they are fast becoming mass transport for the poor of mountainous cities, such as Medellin in Colombia. Refugees from the country's long civil war had crowded into hillside districts. A cable car opened in 2004 was the answer. Since then, Cali, Caracas and Rio de Janeiro, as well as Mexico City, have built similar systems. In September, Evo Morales, Bolivia's president, opened La Paz's fifth teleférico, extending the world's longest and highest network, with a link to the clifftop city of El Alto. With government subsidies, cable cars are not only a popular cheap alternative to private buses, but vote winners too. Politicians like them because they can be built without displacing large groups of people. It often takes 18 months or less in time for re-election. Mayors think, I'm going to be cutting the ribbon, says Mr Davila. And taking to the skies even seems to be a little safer. Bandits go after buses but leave the cable cars alone, says David Ramirez, a passenger. The gondola's cosy interiors include two facing metal benches, encouraging conversation. Those bandits chasing Colombian buses probably don't wear the black eye masks you might remember from cartoon cops and robbers. But as an article in our Science and Technology pages explained, a small dinosaur named Sinoceropteryx actually did. The jury's still out on whether it carried a swag bag. In recent years, it has become clear that many, if not all, dinosaurs belonging to a group called the theropods had feathers. One line of these creatures gave rise to birds, but the rest, though they could not fly, nevertheless seemed to have had patterns in their plumage just as birds do. This can be seen from the distribution in their fossils of pigment particles called melanosomes. Researchers travelled to China to see some well-preserved specimens and take some high-resolution snaps of the plumage. Once they fed these into a computer... They found, to their surprise, a distinct stripe of dark feathers that ran across the animals' faces and around both of their eyes. This is the first time a bandit mask has been seen on a dinosaur, though they are a popular choice among other animals. Raccoons and ferrets have classic bandit masks. Bee-eaters, ospreys and kookaburras have similar eye-disguising patterns, and badgers and skunks also have dark eye-crossing stripes. What purpose these furtive markings serve is still a matter of debate. Disguising eyes, as a real bandit mask does, would help stop prey spotting predatory peepers that were studying them just before their owner lunged for the kill. Conversely, a bandit mask might help potential prey avoid attracting the attention of would-be predators. But for badgers and skunks, conspicuousness seems to be key. A way of gently warning predators, Don't mess with me or I will rip your leg off, spray you with something so horrible that nothing will go near you for weeks. Consider yourself warned. With Halloween just around the corner, you probably won't have to deal with masked dinosaurs, but the odd ghost might drop by for sure. And in our Books and Arts section this week, we reviewed a book that explored the history of hauntings. Kings, queens, horses, dogs, crows, a whirling heap of hay, a wronged lover, an old friend, a stillborn child, an atmospheric light. As Susan Owens highlights in her new cultural history of ghosts, phantasms and spirits have assumed many guises and taken up numerous causes over the millennia. The familiar loose sheet came into fashion in medieval times when a ghost wasn't always such an unwelcome guest. Some sought revenge or intervened on the side of the oppressed. Others offered moral lessons 
or simply pop by for a friendly chat. I'm sure they did. The appearance of apparitions has been explained in many different ways through the ages. In the 15th century, people thought they were the souls of those suffering in purgatory, appearing to ask for intercession and a quick passage to heaven. When the English Reformation did away with purgatory, ghosts were still spotted, apparently unaware that they had been declared doctrinal impossibilities. So these visions became instead the work of Satan. Phantoms have even provided artistic inspiration. In the 18th and 19th centuries, Ms. Owens, an art historian, notes that ghosts began to exert an irresistible magnetism for poets, painters and novelists, resulting in the birth of the graveyard school and a proliferation of creepy Gothic novels. And despite the best efforts of science, the belief in spirits lingers on. Modern scientists continue to pour scorn on the idea, attributing sightings to carbon monoxide poisoning and sleep paralysis. But the British are more confident about the existence of ghosts than they are of a divine creator or heaven. Best keep a light on, then. That's the end of this week's episode of Tasting Menu. Or is it? Don't forget you can read all of the articles mentioned in this week's issue and find all our other podcasts online. Keep sending in your feedback by email to radio at economist.com or tweet us at Economist Radio. In London, this is The Economist. Thank you.